You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So let's bow before the Lord in prayer and commit our time to Him. Father, we thank You for this morning and for giving us safe travel here, for calling us here together to study Your Word. We pray that as we look at some very difficult to understand things, that our hearts and minds would be open, that You would be our teacher. We commit this time to You with the confident expectation that You will bless it, that You will use it, and we pray that You would help Your Word to be clear to us, that we might apply it, understand it rightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Dave is teaching in uh, student ministries, the teens, on the subject of the Holy Spirit. A couple weeks ago, he gave them an outline of the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And uh, he's been teaching on the passage, Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And Dave has been, or Jess has been teaching on the subject of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit of God in sanctification in Romans 8. And so I figured that I would talk about the work of the Spirit of God in the book of Acts. So since we're... We're all on the same page and we're giving you way too much or enough of everything about the Holy Spirit. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. It's been a while since you heard that, hasn't it? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to begin in chapter 2. And this is kind of in response to a question, and I think Ray raised this question about six or eight weeks ago, about the work of the Spirit of God in Acts 19, the disciples of John the Baptist and how they spoke in tongues after Paul laid hands on them and they were baptized and that kind of raised the issue of the supernatural aspects of the work of the Spirit of God. So I told Jess after that lesson that next time I have a chance to take adult Sunday school class with any kind of notice whatsoever, I will um, we'll go through the book of Acts and just go through the phenomena, the, the working of the Spirit of God in the book of Acts and see what we can learn there. So let me give you a little bit of groundwork, lay a little bit of interpretive groundwork for the book of Acts to begin with. Acts is a transitional book, and we always have to keep that in mind. You heard Jess say that. You've heard me say that. Acts is a transitional book. It is a book that records events that happen during a transitory or transitional period from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So you had the Old Covenant that was in place for centuries, and you had the Jewish people and the theocracy and the temple and the sacrifices and all of that culture and all of the Old Testament law. Then suddenly you have coming into effect the New Covenant. And what you have in the book of Acts is a record of this transition that took place from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And things in the book of Acts, there are things in the book of Acts which are normal and which continue today. And there are things in the book of Acts which are not normal and are not intended to be taken as normative for today. Let me give you a couple examples of things that you would never think to make the normal experience of every Christian today. Choosing a leader by lot like in Acts chapter 1 when they replaced Judas with Matthias. Do we select our leaders by lots today, by casting lots? Should it be Ray or should it be Anna? Let's roll the dice and see which one is going to be our new pastor. We, we don't do that, do we? We don't select our leaders by lots. We don't expect that to be the normative practice today. The pooling of resources that you see in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 2 where they all had all of their goods in common, they pooled them together. We don't do that today. We don't expect that to be the norm today. The How about the death of liars, like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? If every person who told a lie inside the church building died on the spot, 
how many of us would be left? Right? We don't expect the Spirit of God to slay instantly and kill somebody who tells a lie in the church right on the spot or outside of the church. That's not a normal thing that happened. We don't see it happening all the time in the book of Acts. Philip being miraculously transported from Samaria out into the desert to evangelize the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't do that today. We're planning a Mexico mission trip, but we don't say, well, we're just going to be teleported by the Spirit of God from Sandpoint down to Mexico. No, we book an airline because we don't believe that it's normal today for the Spirit of God to lift us out of one place and instantly put us in another place. Also, an angel delivering a Christian from jail like he did for Peter. The conversion of Saul and Tarsus being bitten by a snake and surviving like Paul did in Acts 28. All of those things are not intended to be normal or normative or the normal experience of every Christian. But what we have in the book of Acts is this interpretive question. We have to ask ourselves, what, as we read through Acts, is intended to be a description of what happened and what is intended to be a prescription of what we are to do? Do you understand the difference? What is descriptive and what is prescriptive? In other words, what in the book of Acts is intended for us to look at and say, well, that was a phenomenal thing that happened, and we can learn something from that, and which things in the book of Acts are intended for us to say, we're going to model after that. And this should be the normal experience of every Christian every day. And in doing that, sometimes it's very difficult. The problem in, in, in keeping those things straight in our mind is difficult. It's a difficult interpretive challenge, I should say. And it requires us to keep the whole counsel of God in mind. So as we read through the book of Acts, we have to read through the book of Acts in light of what we understand the teaching of the apostles to be in the epistles. And you can't just seize upon a passage in the book of Acts and say, we're going to make this the pattern for everything we do and everything we experience, because then you're going to get into doctrinal error. Okay, so we're going to briefly visit each one of these passages, and there are four of them in the book of Acts where we see something odd happening with the work of the Spirit of God in the spiritual manifestation and people getting saved. And those are Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Acts chapter 8 when the gospel came to Samaria, Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius got saved, and Acts chapter 19 with the disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus. Acts 2, 8, 10, and 19. So we're going to go through all four of those chapters today. And having done that, you're going to say to yourself, why couldn't you have gone that fast when you were preaching through Acts the first time? So Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at the subject of, or the day of Pentecost. This is the birth of the church. So we're going to read, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through verse 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. I want you to notice it's a supernatural gift. This is a work of the Spirit of God. The word tongues is the word glossa, from which we get glossary or, or um, glossolalia. It is the idea of a language. In the New Testament, the word tongues or glossa always, without exception, always refers to a human language. And it was a human language in Acts chapter 2. How do I know that? Well, you're going to see it in just a second. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, did the crowd get together and say, what is this ecstatic babble that we cannot understand? It must be a prayer language. Did the crowd do that? The crowd said, how are these Jews speaking our tongue, our glossa, our language? We understand them to be speaking in our language. And you see from uh, 
Oh, you'll see in just a second. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in our own language? That's a different word, not glossa, but dialectos, from which we get our English word. Dialect. So these men were speaking not just languages, roughly speaking. They were speaking dialects with the accent and the individual dialects of these different languages that were gathered together. In hear them speaking in our own language, verse 8, to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, quite a, different, quite a bunch of different languages, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own dialect, the word dialectos again, tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. So this on Acts chapter 2, this is a supernatural event. It's a work of the Spirit of God, and they are speaking what? Languages, actual, not just the language, but the dialect of individual languages. Wrong. No, this is, this is not a miracle of hearing. This is a miracle of speaking. So it's not, if, if you're German and I'm Italian, it's not that I'm speaking Italian and you're hearing German. It's that I all of a sudden have a supernatural gift to be able to speak a language I've never learned in a dialect in your particular dialect, so that you are hearing the gospel, not just in your language, but in your dialect. So all of a sudden, I begin speaking. No, the, uh, the twelve disciples, each of them probably were able to speak a different language. So they were able to get up and preach, and these different guys, probably in different parts of the temple complex or different parts of that area where they were at, speaking to these different groups in these individual languages and dialects. Does that answer your question? In a dialect, like there's two different types of German, I guess. Deidre's mom and dad know, is it low German? They know both. But there's a difference between low German and high German. And they're able to speak both dialects of German. So they're different dialects. Even within different languages, you can have one language, but there are different types of dialects even within that individual language. Okay, so this is Acts chapter 2 is a one-time, unrepeatable event. It's unrepeatable in the sense that this was the birth of the church. It's not intended to be a a pattern for us to follow today. It's not intended to be normative. It's not intended to be something that we duplicate all the time in different revival meetings. This is Pentecost. This is the birth of the church. This is something entirely new, something the Old Testament knew nothing about. This is the birth of the body of Christ, the Spirit of God coming now to indwell believers individually and His body, His church, corporately, so this is a phenomenon that begins the church on the day of Pentecost. Any other questions about Acts 2 before we go on to Acts 8? Right. They were speaking with other tongues, right. So Pentecost is not a miracle of hearing. It's a miracle of speaking. And that's what I say. Are these guys not Galileans? How is it that I hear him speaking Parthian in my dialect? How does he know that? And the other apostle, how is he speaking Cretan and the Cretan dialect? How is this guy speaking the mother tongue of Egypt in a South Egyptian Cairo dialect. How does he know that? He never learned that. Where did he pick that up? And that's why they said they must be drunk. Well, they're trying to assign a natural explanation to a supernatural event. Mel? There's more languages than disciples, right. But it's possible that each disciple could have spoken more than one language or more than one dialect, too. 
So what Luke is doing is he's basically giving us, and he's not filling in all the details, and this is a good observation, he's not filling in all the details, but he is giving us enough of a, of an, a description of this for us to be able to say, these disciples or these apostles were speaking in different languages. Now, Peter could have spoken maybe Egyptian southern dialect and northern dialect and a little Cretan as well. He could have been speaking to both crowds and addressing both of them in multiple tongues or languages, dialects. Good point. Acts chapter 8. This is a little bit different. So we're kind of screaming through this. We're going to see sort of a pattern as we go through. And then at the end of all of this, Lord willing, we're going to, I'm sort of going to tie it all together. Acts chapter 8. Uh, in Acts chapter 7 and 6, persecution had basically forced the church outside of Jerusalem. So this is... The Jewish the Jewish men, Jewish Christians like Philip, who go down into Samaria. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered were, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now, there was a man named Simeon. Simon, this is Simon the sorcerer. Uh, let's see, we're going to skip over him because he kind of is a parenthesis in there. Go down to verse 14. So this is after the Samaritans have believed. Verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So, in Acts chapter 8, this is the first time that you have the preaching of the Word outside of Jerusalem. Philip goes down and he preaches, and the Samaritans believe. Now, remember the animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews. They hated each other. Well, Philip, a Jewish evangelist from the church in Jerusalem, lands in Samaria, preaches the word. The Samaritans believed. That's what the text says. They believed. They had been baptized in the name of Jesus, but something out of the ordinary had happened. What was it? Even though they had believed and been baptized, they had not received the Holy Spirit. So John and Peter come down from Jerusalem, or actually go up to Jer- from Jerusalem into Samaria, and they begin praying for the Samaritans that the Samaritans would receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, after they lay hands on them, the Holy Spirit is given to the Samaritans. Now, both Catholics and Charismatics use this passage to teach a couple of different doctrines. Catholics use this passage to teach the idea, the whole concept of confirmation. That you can be saved and not receive the Spirit of God, and then a bishop or a priest goes and lays his hands on you, and then you are confirmed in the faith. So they would point to this passage as one of the proof texts for that. Charismatics, of course, point to this passage as proof that somebody can be saved and not receive the Spirit of God until they have hands laid on them and they are baptized with fire, or they have a second work of the Spirit of God that then fills them and gives them some sort of miraculous sign like gifts or healings or whatever. Uh, the statement of fundamental truths by the assemblies of God says this, and I'm not trying to poke fun at my charismatic brethren. Quote, all believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire, according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
this was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. End quote. Now that raises the question, was this the normal experience of all in the early Christian church? Was that the normal experience in Jerusalem? That you're saved, then baptized, and at some later point, somebody comes and lays hands on you, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you're baptized with fire, and get the gift of tongues. And by the way, do you notice in Acts chapter 8, the gift of tongues is not mentioned. It doesn't say anything about tongues in Acts 8, does it? Tongues are not mentioned there. It just says they received the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say what the outward visible sign of that was. So every indication in Acts 8 is that something different was going on here than had gone on in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And we have to ask ourselves, why did Peter and John go to Samaria? Why would they do that? Anybody have any ideas? Why would Peter and John go to Samaria and lay hands on the Samaritan believers so that they could receive the Holy Spirit? Peter was the Pope. No, wrong answer. Swing and a miss. Nope. Anna? Okay, good. So, go ahead. Right. Good. I think one of two things is going on here. Number one, and this is what Anna suggested, I believe that it's possible that God withheld the giving of the Spirit of God to the Samaritans in order for the apostles to come down from Jerusalem to Samaria and see, can these half-breeds really get saved with our Messiah? Because the Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. So what would have happened had the Spirit of God come into Samaria and the apostles never gone to Samaria? What would have happened? You would have had the first church of Jews in Jerusalem and the first church of Samaritans in Samaria. And they would have wanted nothing to do with each other. So one of the things that came out of this was that the apostles had to come down and say they have believed the gospel, they have been baptized, and now they can receive the Holy Spirit. These guys are our brothers. We're one and the same. They can get saved with the same Messiah that we get saved with. So it makes the Samaritans recognize the authorities of the church in Jerusalem, the apostles, and it makes the apostles recognize the legitimacy of Samaritan salvation. It forces them to do that. Well, why would that happen? Well, what would happen when Peter and James and John and the other apostles and Matthew begin writing books of the New Testament with authoritative authority, declaring their own authority over the church? Do you think the Samaritans would have accepted that? They would have said, forget it. What, had this, what was the Samaritan history? Remember John chapter 4? We worship on Mount Gerizim. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So where should we worship? There was a rift between these half-Jew, half-Gentile Samaritans and the true Jewish church in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans wanted nothing to do with Jerusalem, Jewish worship. The Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritan worship. By withholding the Spirit of God, God was sovereignly, I think, demonstrating the unity of the church. The apostles come down, lay their hands on the Samaritans. It's an object lesson to the Samaritans, and it's an object lesson to the apostles. There may be a second thing going on here, and that is that it may be that John and Peter understood that something odd had happened in Jerusalem. Philip had gone down, preached the word. They had believed. They had been baptized, but they hadn't received the Spirit of God. And I think it's possible that word got back to Peter and John. They said, that's, that's not normal. That's not what we're seeing happen in Jerusalem. We need to go check this out. They go to Samaria to diagnose what is the problem. Why is what's going on in Samaria different than what we are seeing happen in Jerusalem? And so they go there for that purpose. And they begin to pray, and then the Spirit of God comes upon the Samaritans. Dave? 
Okay, so were they saved when they believed? Which is what we believe now. And the second part of that question is, what if John and Peter had not come and they had never received the Spirit of God? I can't answer the second part because that didn't happen. So, I mean, it's, it's a hypothetical. It's one of those what-ifs where I can't answer it. It did happen, so that's all we need to know. Um, I, I don't know. I, I assume it would have. I assume that the reason God withheld it was so Peter and John would come down. No, It could have been. Okay, so... Yeah, so I, and the text doesn't say any of that. Maybe the sun didn't come up that day, and I mean, and uh, but I can't build doctrine on any of that. It's it's interesting observation. <laughs> okay, well, let me answer the first half of the question. The first half of the question was, were they saved? And the answer to that would be yes, they were. They had believed. And they had been baptized in the name of Jesus. And notice that Luke in Acts 8 says they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what makes you scratch your head. They had not been baptized in the Spirit. That's what made Philip... Luke says it. They were simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they had believed. And Luke uses the same word that he uses everywhere else to describe genuine conversion and salvation. They heard the word. They believed the word. They trusted in Christ. They were baptized in obedience to that. But after a period of time, however long that was, Philip said, something's not right here. These guys have not received the Spirit of God. Now, how did he know that? Possible that they didn't exercise any of the fruits of the Spirit. Maybe they didn't uh, have any spiritual gifts. Maybe the work of sanctification over a period of time wasn't going on like it should. Something was out of kilter. Luke doesn't tell us what it is, but something was amiss. And so Peter and John come down. Then they received the Spirit of God. Now, were they saved during that period of time? I think they genuinely were. But notice Acts 8 is intended to be the exception to the rule. There's something odd about it. What is the rule? The rule, generally speaking, is that in Romans 8, he who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Christ. That's the rule. That is the, that's standard Christian doctrine. This is the exception to the rule. Philip knew it. Peter and John knew it. They understood. These guys belong to Christ, but they don't have the Spirit of God. Something is amiss here that needs to be corrected. Could the baptism have been something like when John the Baptist was baptizing unto repentance? No, because this is Christian baptism, which Acts 8 says they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, just like Philip does to the eunuch later on, and just like had happened at uh, Jerusalem. Ron? Yeah, the apostles were saved before Pentecost. No, not till Pentecost. It would, yeah, it would be a similar thing to what happened with the apostles. Right. Simon believes he's baptized and he's not a believer. Right. So you can have Christians who are baptized and who are not believers who say they are, but they're not. They wouldn't be Christians. So what's your question with Simon? He sees... This ability that Peter and John have in the laying on of hands. And Simon was a sorcerer. And in his mind, he was still reverting back to what he was familiar with, which was, man, if I had the ability to do whatever these guys are doing, I could make some money. That's what he wants. Okay? Um, So, every indication from Acts 8 is that this is an odd occurrence and it's not intended to be normal. We don't see this happening at Jerusalem. We don't see it happening with the Ethiopian eunuch. It's not like something was deficient with Philip's evangelism because the next thing he does is go down into the desert on the way from Gaza 
And he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved. And he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, but he doesn't have to call Peter and John down and say, i got another one of these guys that's really weird. He's saved and he's been baptized, but I just can't seem to get the Spirit of God into him. Will you guys come down? There's no record that the apostles jetted all over the Mediterranean, laying hands on people, filling them with the Spirit of God after the evangelists did their job. There's no indication that that happened. This is something very unique that's going on in Acts 8. Um, Acts 9, uh, so, well, Cornelius receives the Spirit of God and tongues in Acts 10, as you're going to see, without the laying on of hands. And the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 receives the Spirit of God and is saved without any mention of the laying on of hands or any kind of second work. Any other questions? We'll go on to Acts 10. We're sort of just following this thread. Okay, Acts chapter 10. The subject of Cornelius. Uh, this is kind of, the, the conversion of Cornelius takes up from Acts chapter 10 all the way through to Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Now you've got to ask yourself, if you're a student of Scripture, why does Luke spend so much time detailing the conversion of this one man, Cornelius? Why so much time? This is more time than he spends to, on the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, any, a Pentecost, any other thing. This, is, this one man's conversion takes up more space in the book of Acts than anything else. What is Luke doing? I believe, it's, I believe that Acts chapter 11, I mentioned this when I preached through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10 and 11 is the hinge of the whole book. Before this, it's primarily Jewish evangelism. Jerusalem, Samaria, the Jewish apostles. After Acts chapter 11, it's like the door has swung and this opens the door to the Gentile mission, to Gentile evangelism. So the question for any Jew reading the book of Acts would be, can a Gentile, those unsaved Gentile, uncircumcised Gentile dogs, can they possibly be saved? That's how a Jew would be thinking. So as Luke writes the book of Acts, he cruises through, this is Cornelius, is five or six years after Pentecost, when it comes to Cornelius, urge screeches to a halt. He tells us about Peter's vision, what Peter saw about Cornelius' vision, what Cornelius saw, goes to Cornelius, brings Peter and Cornelius together. He de de describes Cornelius describing to Peter his vision, Peter describes to Cornelius his vision, then Cornelius gets saved, then Peter goes back to Jerusalem, and the apostles call him on the carpet and say, what were you doing eating with the Gentiles? And Peter explains to him, Here's what Cornelius had the vision of. I had the vision of this. I went and did this. Here's what God did all of that time. Telling the story over and over and over again. Why? So that we get the point that a Gentile can be saved. Okay, Acts chapter 10. Cornelius. We're going to jump past all of Peter's visions and Cornelius' visions and get to verse 34, opening his mouth. This is when Peter and Cornelius finally get together. I most certainly understand now, Peter said. That God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness 
that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And of course, after this, Peter does an altar call and they play through just as I am 15 times and Cornelius and all of his. Is that how it works? It's not what happened at all, is it? Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking, he wasn't even done with his sermon. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. What amazed them? Gentiles get the Spirit of God. How are we going to stomach this? Right? That Gentiles could be saved and be filled with the Spirit of God. This amazed them. Well, verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Lord Jesus just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he asked them to stay on for a few days. Now, Verse 11, Peter gets back to Jerusalem and the brethren who were out Judea had heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. (laughs) Horror, verse 1. Number 2, and when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, that is the Jewish Christians, took issue with him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence saying, I was in the city of Joppa. He goes through his whole vision, what he had, what Cornelius had. Get down to verse 14. Um... Verse 15, and I began, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. Okay? Yay. Yeah, absolutely. So what's going on here? Well, there's something theological that's happening here. What is the nature of tongues in Acts 10? Did you catch it? What are, uh, is the tongues in Acts 10 different than the tongues we saw back in Acts 2? How? Okay, in Acts 2 it's evidence of the indwelling of the Spirit of God too. Is, is this diff- is this ecstatic babble? That's my question. No, but they but the apostles hear them speak in what ecstatic babble or a language, a language. Same word glossa that they hear. In fact, Peter says God gave them the same gift that He gave to us. Right? That indicates. Peter's drawing a connection between what he's seeing with Cornelius and what happened back when in Acts chapter 2. In fact, fact, Peter says um, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when? At the beginning. Now, notice that Peter doesn't say the Spirit of God came upon them and they manifested the same gift that we see every Sunday in our normal gathering. He doesn't say that, does he? The only thing that Peter can connect this experience to is what? Pentecost. That's the same gift he gave to us at the beginning. Peter doesn't say this is the same thing that happens to every Jew who gets saved. He said this is the same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost. There's only one thing that Peter can give as a parallel to this event, and that's Pentecost in Acts 2. He doesn't even say this is the same thing we saw at Pentecost and in Samaria. Same thing we saw Pentecost, which 
raises the question if the filling of the Spirit accompanied by tongues is the normal expectation of every Christian, why did this surprise Peter? doesn't. Why is he amazed? It's not just because they're Gentiles, but because there's only one thing that Peter can connect this to, and that's Pentecost. That thing. Wait, and this was six years later. So now the charismatic would say, see, as a charismatic reads to the book of tongues, they see, or reads to the book of Acts, they see tongues on every page. I don't see it that way at all. I see tongues as being something very unique and very rare in the New Testament. So, our charismatic brethren would say, we need to get back in the church to the normal pattern in the book of Acts. What's the normal pattern? Well, they go to Acts 8. Here you have somebody getting saved and receive the Spirit and they speak in tongues and they're baptized. And, and Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and he gets saved and he speaks against the Holy Spirit and he speaks in tongues. And they say, that's the pattern. That's the New Testament pattern. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. That's the pattern in the New Testament. Yes. Well, yeah, that's, that's it. The charismatic argument is that it was real languages in Acts 2, but as you go through Acts, the book of Acts, in Acts 10 and Acts 19, it changes to a prayer language or this ecstatic babble that we have. That's kind of assumed. But there's nothing in the text. It, always in the text it suggests that it's languages, dialect. So here's the question. Does Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10 actually create for us a biblical New Testament pattern? So let's go through the differences or the similarities, if there are any, of Acts 8 and Acts 10. In Acts chapter 8, there is a delay between belief and receiving the Spirit with the Samaritans, right? In Acts chapter 10, belief and receiving the Spirit are simultaneous. In Acts chapter 8, they're baptized with water before they receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, they're baptized with water after they receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, they receive the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands. In Acts chapter 10... Peter wouldn't have touched Cornelius to save his life. They received the Spirit of God apart from any laying on of hands. In Acts chapter 8, tongues are not even mentioned. And in Acts chapter 10, tongues are the central evidence of the giving of the Spirit. So now I ask you, what is the New Testament pattern? If we're to build a pattern out of the book of Acts on the work of the Spirit of God, what's the pattern? What pattern is developed here? What order are these events supposed to come in? Do you see a pattern, Carol? Right, there's, and this is the point. He's trying to get a point across in every situation. What is the intention of God in each of these unique situations? But this is, this is the central issue. These are unique. There's no pattern here. There's no pattern in Acts. Acts 2 is different from 8, 10, and 19. Acts 8 is different than 2, 10, and 19. 10 is different than 2, 8, and 19. And 19 is different than 2, 8, and 10. They're all different. Each one of these things is separate. You can't build a pattern. You can't teach off of any one of these things. There's no pattern. Each one of these things is unique. So much so that when the apostles see it, they go, something is odd here. And that's why Luke records them. Recorded because they're unique occurrences. Right, and that's, that's the point in Acts chapter 10. God's intention was that the Jews understand the Gentiles are in the church as well. And nothing, I tell you, nothing in the world could have convinced 
a single Jew that a Gentile could be saved unless God gave that Gentile the gift of tongues to demonstrate to that Jew it's the same belief, the same gospel, the same Messiah, the same salvation, the same Holy Spirit. Nothing could have convinced a Jew. And notice when... What's that? Tongues are for a sign, right. And they are a sign even to these Jews. So when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, what does he say? He points to the tongues. How can I stand in God's way? You want evidence? I'll give you evidence. The same thing happened to them that's happened to us. And the rest of the apostles said, all right, then that's case closed. That's all the evidence we need. It's the same Spirit of God. The Gen- God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. I mean, we just can't stop this thing from growing. As much as we want to exclude Gentiles, we can't. Who are we to stand in God's way? That's kind of the sentiment. Ray. Right. You're not going to see any more mention of the book in the book of Acts of Tongues until Acts chapter 19. So let's go there real quick. And see if we can make sense of this, and then we will. I'll try and tie it all together and show you what's common with each one of these passages. Acts chapter 19. This is at the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. He gets to Ephesus, and when he gets to Ephesus, there are two very unique situations there. One is at the end of Acts 18, and that's with Apollos, who got saved. And Priscilla and Aquila hear him teaching, but he's a mighty teacher, but they said something's wrong. So they take him aside, they instruct him privately and kind of straighten out some of his theology. He had sort of a different understanding of who the Messiah was, and they get that corrected. Then you get to the beginning of Acts 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples, and he said to them, now, by the way, disciples just simply means somebody who believes or a follower or a learner. And it's used not in the sense of a believer in Jesus Christ here, because it's going to become clear in a second. These guys are not Christians, but they are disciples. They're followers, but they're followers of who? They're followers not of Jesus Christ, but of John the Baptist. That's going to become clear as we read to it. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, even though the details are scant, we're given enough details to see what's going on here. Paul is not traveling from city to city saying, hey, have you received the Spirit of God? No, let me lay hands on you and we'll show you some power. Have you received the Spirit of God? Something happens here because they're not believers. There's something in their conversation with Paul. And he cuts right to the quick of the issue and he asks them this question. Did you receive the Spirit of God when you believed? Something is wrong with this group. And in their discussion with Paul, Paul's able to put his finger on something's amiss. So we ask them the question that really boils down right to the issue of it. When you believed, did you receive the Spirit of God? And they said to him, no, we haven't even heard whether there was a Holy Spirit. In other words, they hadn't heard about the giving of the Spirit of God at Pentecost. Now, if they hadn't heard of the giving of the Spirit of God at Pentecost, then they obviously knew nothing about Christian baptism. They obviously knew nothing about Christian the Gospel, Christian salvation, or the receiving or the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So he said to them, In then, into what then were you baptized? Now obviously the subject of baptism had come up, and they had mentioned that they were baptized, but something was wrong. Paul cuts to the issue, have you received the Spirit? No, we hadn't even heard there was a Spirit. Well then into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, that is John the Baptist. Then the light goes on for Paul. John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, that is, when they heard Paul's gospel presentation, then they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a different baptism, right? That's Christian baptism. So here is a group, and this is a very unique thing. 
Here's a group of people who are at some point connected with John the Baptist had been baptized into his baptism, which was a baptism of repentance to prepare the way for the Messiah. Then for 20 years, they had been waiting for this Messiah to come. They had heard of John's baptism. They heard his message of repentance. They baptized themselves into John's baptism and were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They had heard nothing about the coming of Jesus. They had heard nothing about the giving of the Spirit of God or the Christian gospel. And for 20 years, they've been sort of lingering. This is a group of Old Testament saints, as it were who are sort of lingering in nether netherland, still waiting for the Messiah. And Paul is able to discern, this is the issue. They understood John's message, but then he explains to them, John baptized you a baptism of repentance so that you would prepare for this one who is coming, and his name is Jesus. And then Paul preached Jesus to him. Paul didn't say, oh, well, what you really need is the fire of the Spirit of God. Come here, I'll lay my hands on you, and you'll speak in tongues, and everything will be better. That's not what Paul does. Paul begins to preach Jesus to him because he recognizes They need to hear the message of the Christian gospel. If they haven't heard of the Spirit of God being given, they haven't received the Spirit of God, something is wrong. So you notice in Acts 19, again, something is amiss, right? That's why Paul asked the question. You haven't received the Spirit of God. That was not normal. That's why Paul says, what was your baptism like? Tell me the message you heard. What's wrong here? Why? Because what was the normal series of events? You believed and you were filled with the Spirit of God and you obeyed God in believer's baptism. That's the normal sequence of events. But then Paul runs into somebody who, some people who said they had believed, they had been baptized, but they didn't have the Spirit of God. And then Paul's able to put his finger on it. The reason is because they've never heard of Jesus himself. He preaches Jesus to them. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul laid his hands upon them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And they were in all about 12 men. Does everybody understand what's going on there in Acts chapter 19? Okay? Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19 are all different, unique. Something's odd about this situation. So what is going on? Here's what I think is going on. I'll do this in 120 seconds. Tongues in the New Testament are rare. They're rare in the book of Acts. You see them once in the day of Pentecost, a unique, unrepeatable historic event. Then you see them again, not in Acts 8, because they're not mentioned. But let's just assume it's in Acts 8. We can do that for the sake of argument. You see them in Acts 8. Then you see them again mentioned six years later at Cornelius. And then again mentioned 14 years after Cornelius in Ephesus. Now, when a charismatic reads the book of Acts, they see tongues on every page. It's tongues, it's tongues, it's healings, it's miracles. We need to duplicate all of that in the church. I don't see that in the book of Acts at all. I see three occurrences of the book of, in the book of Acts of tongues in over a 30-year period of time that Acts covers. Three unique, very odd historical events in the book of Acts. It's unique in the rest of the New Testament as well, or rare in the rest of the New Testament as well. You see it mentioned in 1 Corinthians. You don't see it in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. You don't see it in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Romans. You don't see it mentioned in 2 Corinthians. You see it in no other New Testament book but 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the errors of charismatic abuse of tongues, not commending their use of tongues. He's correcting their abuses. But other than that, you don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. So what's going on in the book of Acts, and how do we tie all four of these occurrences together? Tongues was there at the beginning of the church when the church was born. And I would liken it to this. I'll give you an illustration. This analogy is going to limp because every analogy limps. It's like throwing a big rock in a still pond. And what happens? You get waves that go out from the point of impact from that rock. 
And as those waves spread out, eventually they're going to hit things like other rocks or the shore or a tree stump or a lily pad or whatever it is. That's what you have going on in the book of Acts. You have this event. Boom! Acts 2. The birth of the Spirit of God, or the birth of the church of God, the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Then as that gospel hits Samaria, boom, you have something unique that's happening. As it goes out and it hits the Gentiles, you have another unique occurrence. And then as it goes out further from that and hits these Old Testament saints who are still lingering around waiting for the Messiah, you have the same thing happening again in much smaller scale, as it were. So in the book of Acts, what you have is you have, as it were, Pentecost repeated on a much smaller scale or the effects of Pentecost. You see it happen, boom, here and here and here. At what times? When the gospel goes to Gentiles and when the gospel hits these Old Testament saints who are waiting for their Messiah. And it's almost as if intentionally the Spirit of God was demonstrating for all the world in the book of Acts that when the church was born, it included Jews, it included Samaritans, it included Gentiles, it included everybody. Even the Old Testament saints who were still around waiting for their Messiah, if they would believe, having heard the baptism of John, if they would believe the gospel, they would get saved and they would receive the Spirit of God as well. So the phenomenon of Pentecost was repeated in order to demonstrate the inclusion of all of these groups of individuals. We have no reason to suspect that anything in the book of Acts that we've looked at in these three very odd, very unique, very one-time events was intended to be the pattern or the norm for today. And as we saw on the chart, there is no pattern or norm expected. Dave. Oh, I know I've received the Spirit of God. I see the evidence of the Spirit of God in my life. So somebody asked me, did you receive the Spirit of God when you believed? I would say, yeah, I did. See, the question that Paul asked them in Acts 19 is intended to get to the heart of the issue, and that is, are they really saved? Because the assumption behind Paul's question is, if you have believed, you should have received the Holy Spirit. But Paul didn't see any evidence of that in their lives. Something was amiss. And so he gets to the heart of the issue, which is their salvation. If you were saved, you should have received the Spirit of God. You should have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. But we don't know anything about that. I don't have any clue what spirit get. was the Spirit given. Is there something unique going on here? Well, then Paul says, well, what then did you believe? When you believed and were baptized, what then did you believe? Well, we believed in John's baptism. We're waiting for the Messiah. That's the problem. John preached a baptism of repentance. You guys haven't heard. He was proclaiming the one who was to come. That is Jesus. And he's come. He's died. He's buried. He rose again. Messiah is already here and he's come. That's where you're deficient. You're deficient in your understanding of who Jesus is. One more question. Then we've got to wrap it up because I went longer than 120 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, could it be that Paul was able to see that they weren't understanding the things, the spiritual things? That's possible. Maybe they didn't have a spiritual gift. Maybe they weren't being sanctified. Maybe something that they said kind of clued Paul in that, okay, something's askew here. Luke doesn't tell us what it is that clued Paul in that something was amiss, but we get the indication from the text. Something was odd, and Paul moved to correct it. Okay, think on those things. 
We'll be back next Sunday if you have more questions. And uh, you can save them for a Q&A time next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your goodness and grace. And even as we've gone through these things quickly, we do pray, Father, that you give us insight and illumination to think upon these things and understanding from your word. We pray, God, that everything that has been said would be clear and accurate for your glory's sake. We commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.